0: Sometimes when I'm, like, falling asleep at night, I'll just go through, like, the memories of my dad. Because the saddest thing would be, like, I can't remember that anymore. Because I just have a handful of them. When I see pictures or I hear things,
1: it's just sort of like a, oh, I wonder what would have been. That's all I can feel, is I wonder what would have been. Love me tender Love me sweetie.
0: Never
2: let me
0: go I remember going to the beach with my dad and riding the Little Shetland Ponies.
2: You have made my life complete And I love you so
0: It's like a Rolodex. I'll flip through, I'm like, oh yeah, there's the snow, there's the, you know, the, the graves don't. And then hearing my dad's voice like, what are you doing?!
3: <laughs> Those are the voices of Rachel and Kelly O'Toole and of their father, the late Fran O'Toole. It is 40 years since Fran was killed after the Miami show band was lured into a paramilitary ambush in County Down in Northern Ireland. I'm Susan McKay. I was a teenager in Derry in 1975. For my generation, music was a wonderful escape from the daily reality of the conflict that was engulfing the North. That year, Rachel was four and a half, Kelly just three. They were growing up in the seaside resort of Bray, County Wicklow, in the Republic. They are trying to capture memories of their lost father. I remember
0: sitting by the windows playing, waiting for my dad to come back home. Like, I just had sort of knew that he was kind of like this guy that would work a lot. I remember the very, very, very first time I ever saw snow in my entire life. He must have come home or something because I have this, like, direct memory of him throwing a snowball at me at the window, and it, like, came, like, right at my face and let's shattered across the glass.
3: I've travelled to Canada to meet the O'Toole's. I don't know yet if Rachel and Kelly's mother, Valerie, will talk to me. She and her daughters don't see each other. It's complicated. Oh, we
0: were supposed to look at this uh, carving.
3: Rachel has followed her father into showbiz. See
0: you guys. Carving away our rooftop.
3: She works in Vancouver's thriving film industry and she takes me on a tour of the film set she's
4: working on. It's going to get hard coded, so we wanted to do some deep stuff to. After it's hard coded, it'll come up less.
3: So the hard coding will
0: cover it up like by a quarter of an inch or something? No, an eighth of an inch, uh, or something yeah, like that. It's
4: pretty thin. This
0: I concept. am a uh, production designer. I work on television and films. I work together with the producers and the directors to create the world that tells the story and it's a great job it's such a great job do 15 I live in a pretty uh, high-end and edgy part of Vancouver I really do love living here it's got beautiful mountains and beaches and fresh air and a good culture lots of great food I call Paul my unmarried husband've been together almost seven years he's from Northern Ireland.
1: Damn. I'm almost done. Yeah, almost done. Couple more. Damn. Yay!
3: Okay. Kelly lives in a suburban town with her husband Dustin and their two young sons. She is artistic too. For now, though, her focus is on raising the boys.
1: We live in Langley. Um, Langley is very central. To 20 minutes from the beach, 25, 30 minutes from the city, uh, 25 minutes from the U.S. border. Uh, We live in a nice, quiet neighbourhood where you're within walking distance to stores, parks, the school, things like that. Um, Lots of kids in the neighbourhood, so it's quite good for the little ones. Yep, it's fairly comfortable. We like it.
3: Rachel and Kelly have been gone from Ireland since shortly after their father's death. They scarcely remember Bray. Their cousin David was 10 in 1975, his father, Michael, was Fran's older brother. David still lives not far from the town. He is Rachel and Kelly's strongest link with the past.
5: Uh, my grandfather, Mick, had a mix amusements down at the end of the Albert Walk. My grandmother played the piano. It was quite musical. It was only a small family, but tight-knit. Uh, they grow, grew up in the fairgrounds, I think, so it was very much that kind of background it was kind of a showbiz kind of feeling about the family that I always got
3: Fran's parents kept a box of their son's old papers in their attic, and Fran's brother Michael kept it safe after they died. David sends some of the documents with me to Canada.
0: he's definitely got the hairstyle of somebody who was in a band. this must have been when they were in the chosen few yeah like it's got that's it that style
3: Kelly and Rachel are fascinated by the photos and diaries I've brought from Ireland. <laughs>
0: Why does this feel like something you would draw in elementary oh, school? Yeah. It's, I, it looks like a school book that he's doodled all over and that's funny because I am a doodler. I'm Rachel O. Doodles. Oh. Ah. So this is where I get the crease in my forehead, like that little furrow thing. You see it right there? Nobody wrote any information on the back of photographs at this time, huh? You must be, what, 16, 17 here? I got a few. I got four slaps today for failing my science and missing Latin. There's a lot of slaps. <laughs> so it was lot, You were allowed to slap children in school, I guess. Well, back in the day, of course. course.
1: Sorry, you went to school in Tipperary.
0: I you went to boarding
3: school. All
1: the way in temporary.
3: All the way in Tipperary. For his daughters, the main connection with Fran has been through his music. Thin Lizzy's Phil Linnet called him Ireland's best soul singer. In 1968, when Fran was just 22, he'd been invited to join the Miami show band, one of the most popular in the country. His arrival changed and modernised the band's style. As his nephew David remembers it, Fran's star was on the rise and he was loving it.
5: He drove a purple Ford Capri. It was quite a flash car. You'd always know it was Fran's car driving around Bray when you seen it. Very proud of it, I think. I always remember uh, going out with the two girls and with Fran, and they had a big uh, Alsatian dog. So we would go out for walks in the Dublin Mountains, that kind of thing.
0: I remember rainbows being so bright that they were. They looked like they were painted on the sky with fluorescent paint. I remember going for whippies, right? Is that what they're called, whippies? Or 99s, 99ers.
5: Uh, We used to go down the seafront all the time with the girls and they'd have, you know, 99s. My grandparents' house was the kind of hub of the family and that's where we would meet most of the time.
0: I remember hanging around with my grandmother in the kitchen and her teaching me how to peel an
3: apple.
6: All our songwriting was basically done... In Fran's house, in his mother's house, actually.
3: That's Des Lee, the Miami's saxophonist. He and Fran wrote some of the Miami's great romantic pop songs together, and they were close friends.
6: And his mother, mother used to make us the most gorgeous apple tarts.
3: Fran hadn't left behind the music he'd been so passionate about before he found fame and fortune on the show band circuit.
5: Fran was a big soul fan. He made a very good soul voice. His first band, The Chosen Few, were very much a soul band. They played support to The Who in the stadium at about 1965, 66. I think that's where this real passion lay.
3: For now, though, the Miami was hugely successful and Fran was having a ball.
6: Well, we were known as the Irish Beatles. The Miami in the north was massive. It was massive everywhere. I mean, if you look at, for example, you can see um, photographs today of the band, for example, playing in the Arcadia Ballroom in Bray, where Fran lived. And there would be 2,000 people inside and 2,000 people outside. And they were screaming and shouting. Oh, it was good times.
3: Fran was working six nights a week, zigzagging all over Ireland with the Miami but everyone knew his ambition was to go solo. And in 1971, he auditioned for RTE's Reach for the Stars, the X Factor of its day. He was one of 60 performers selected to compete in the show.
5: Yeah, I remember the night he was, he was on Reach for the Stars. It was really exciting. Um, live on TV with all the family together. Kelly and Rachel were there that night as well. Uh, Kelly would have been just a little baby, so maybe she wasn't in the room with all the excitement. But I certainly remember Rachel being there. And the excitement of
6: him winning the competition was incredible. He fully deserved to win the show. And from there on, it's Fran just took off.
3: David has discovered some old tapes which his Uncle Fran must have recorded while he rehearsed at home in Bray. Rachel and Kelly are excited when I play them in Vancouver. They haven't heard them before.
2: What do you do when you...
0: Have to give me these recordings. They're fun. Yeah. I really like this kind of analog random sound. But you? <laughs> You're kidding? This is totally my sound. That's pretty much what I, if I was playing, I would be sitting around doing, yeah. It's really nice. It's very, actually, what's happening now in music, like, laid back.
3: As she listens to these old recordings from decades ago, Rachel's thoughts turn to her mother,
0: my mother talks about it like it's Romeo and Juliet. It's like she's, she's got it in a golden bubble with nothing wrong, you know, and whose relationship doesn't have anything wrong with it? But she, um, she loved him an, an incredible, incredible amount. They met really, really early, which means that their love was kind of, you know hopped up on hormones and excitement and fantasy. Like, we all know our first love and how intense that is. And so she got to marry her first love and make babies with him. I think They had good times. It's just a bunch of lines.
1: No, it's thing to do with music and the Miami show band. Is it? Yeah, I think it's like...
0: Oh, I guess this was like a work contract. An agreement made on the something September 1967. Yeah, I think at the time, like, getting this job was pretty, pretty kick-ass, I think. And, you know, got instant notoriety, joining a band that was probably already pretty popular. So you get to be paid as a musician. You get to do something that you love for a living. I have a great picture of them on an airplane together where she, my mother, looks absolutely, like, purely happy. Like, it's actually very sad because she just looks like she. they're sitting in a plane and she's looking out and someone just turned and took a photograph of them. And um, yeah, it's like, it's one of those photos where you look at it and you're like, she has no idea what's coming. It's really sad.
6: Our last gig was in the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge. That was our last gig before the massacre.
3: Banbridge is in the part of Northern Ireland known as Mid Ulster. Such was the level of killings in the area during the 1970s that it earned the chilling title of the Murder Triangle but it was also great
6: dancing country. It was a wonderful, wonderful gig. You know, you see, during those terrible times in Northern Ireland, the one thing that we enjoyed doing was giving our fans two hours to get away from all the troubles, two hours to have some fun, to laugh, sing and dance. And we were so happy to put so many smiles on so many faces during that horrible time. We finished the gig in Bambridge, It was probably around about um, I would say 2 o'clock in the morning. We would normally go and speak to the fans, sign autographs, give them photographs of the band. We got in the van and we were heading down towards Dublin. And we noticed this roadblock, which we thought was the normal roadblock that we had been so used to and we were pulled over. We were asked to get out of the van, which we did. We were lined up against the ditch and we were asked several questions, which was what was normal at these roadblocks. But what was actually happening was that two of the gang were going to the van and they were putting a 10 pound bomb into our van, which we didn't know about. And then there was a massive explosion. The, the, The bomb exploded prematurely, killing the two terrorists and blowing me off my feet straight into the field. And I was laying down on the field. I played dead. There was massive gun, gun all around all around me. There was screaming and it was all over within a matter of five minutes. And I just heard running. I heard one guy, um, I heard one guy actually saying, are all those bastards dead? The gang had gone and I spoke, I tried to um, call out the guy's names and I called out uh, Fran, I got no response. Brian, no response. And uh, Tony, no response. I called out Stephen's name and he was moaning.
0: That day, that night, that event, I lost, like that was the day my, my father stopped loving me. And that was the day that my mother became incapable of loving me. That was the day I no longer had the love of my grandmother or anyone else. That our family, if you imagine it as like one unit, it completely broke through that one event. And none of the pieces could ever go back together again.
3: People all over the world were shocked by the murders of these young musicians.
6: Even to this day, I have never seen a bigger funeral in all my life. The whole of Bray was at a standstill. It was a massive funeral. And um, I'll never forget Fran's father, God rest him. When Fran was been lowered into the grave and Fran's father went over to the grave and nearly fell in, I think he might have wanted to fall in on top of Fran. That's how cut up his father was. It was absolutely awful, awful day.
3: Des is haunted by those terrible events. Rachel and Kelly don't remember them. However, they have spent a lot of time searching the internet for traces of their father. On one such troll, Rachel has found footage of his funeral. It's like this
0: huge, this big limousine comes down and this big progression, and then they cut to, like, kind of like the coffin being held by the pallbearers. I think Des is there and my uncle Michael. And you see, like, our mother... Like, totally out of it. She's medicated to high heaven. So depressed looking, but removed completely. And you see the grief in my grandmother's face, the grief in my grandfather. I think he's collapsing. He collapses on the coffin. Yeah, it's, and my Uncle Michael's trying to, like, pick him up. And you're like, this is my entire family. Like, all the people we never saw again are all collectively involved in this screen over this, like, white little coffin.
1: You don't even really know what you're feeling when you watch it. Um, you know? Yeah.
0: It. yeah. You just sort of... Just one single emotion. Yeah. And then it's a reminder of how, you know, those are all your family members that you never saw again as a group.
1: Yeah.
0: Or not only we saw, but
1: we weren't even given back history as in stories or anything like that. There was, it was just a complete cutoff, completely.
3: All that Rachel remembers from that time is that people changed towards her. I do remember this, is that everybody at some
0: point changed and started looking at me differently, and it feels like they were looking at me from within doorways.
3: Their father was gone, and the lives of the little O'Toole girls were about to take a further dramatic turn. Um, my mother went
0: on a sort of relief trip away to Spain with one of her girlfriends because it was so busy at the time with journalists and I don't know what was going on, just a lot of concern and grief and chaos with everybody. She met um, another man there and they decided, after two days, to get engaged and to move to Canada and take us with them. She introduced him as "This is your new dad or this is your new father." And uh, you know here was a stranger that was now playing the role of you know, and now this new man is playing the role of your father. I' like, okay.
5: I knew that um, that Valerie was remarrying. I met her new husband uh, and then suddenly they were gone.
0: That it's over.
5: There was no goodbyes, they were just gone <laughs> I do
3: I'm sorry that I took your time.
2: With a poem that not
0: I think we moved to Canada. It was like April, 2nd, 1976. So not that's what my immigration papers say. It was just like we just, like, dropped a pin somewhere, and that's where we ended up, you know. But I think for my mother, it was quiet, isolated, you know, not a lot of... You wouldn't expect someone to come in in the middle of the night and do anything bad to you, so...
5: She described it as her mother's decision was was like joining a witness protection program. She just wanted out of the situation in Ireland...
3: One of the tapes David found was of his uncle Fran rehearsing James Taylor's Fire and Rain. Although the recording quality is poor, hearing their father singing the song evokes particular memories for Rachel and Kelly. Mm,
2: woke up this morning, never asleep. I got a pain in my head. Nothing new and nothing bad, but I'm is a again. one. this I see
0: fire, see rain A memory of
1: whenever I was younger hearing his music would always be in our mother's darkest moments So there's always that connection for me It's almost not a happy thing
0: But I always thought that I'd see you again She played the music but it was always... During just sad times, it wasn't like a celebration. It was just the sad stuff, you know. She would tell us that he'd, you know, been blown up and that his toes flew over his head or some strange imagery like that. No visions of the future or goals that he had for us or anything like that.
1: We knew our dad was killed. We did not know um, how. I We had heard, all we had heard was shot and blown up. And as a child, you couldn't understand how that... There was a connection there, but you didn't ask.
3: In Ireland, after his death, Fran's first solo single was released and went straight to the top of the charts. His album followed soon afterwards. This was painful for Fran's mother, Mary. Heartbroken, she had stopped going out.
5: He was being talked about all the time, but he wasn't actually around.
2: Smile on sunshine, smile
5: what was before a celebration for my grandparents of hearing them on the radio when she was stuck in the house by herself and this music was being played all the time must have been very difficult for her She lived for Fran and the two kids Fran's death and and missing the two girls I think was just too much for her she never seen him again She died three years later.
3: Des Lee saw Fran as a brother. He was one of those who were shocked by the choices Valerie had made.
6: Been as close as I was to Fran. I was very caught up at the time that Valerie got involved with another man so soon after Fran's death. When I look back on it now it's her life. And I can't tell her what to do. But I was very caught up with that now to be honest.
0: Well we all know she
3: wasn't handling it very well, but who could? Who could ever handle that well? Her daughters understand now, but Valerie's grieving for Fran dominated their girlhood.
1: Our house was a fend for ourself house, so everybody did what they could to just get through. Um, so there was no
0: bonds, like you just isolated. It was dark. My sister and I were just so isolated, like we were pretty much strangers to one another. Just kids, like floating alone, like on little inner tubes out in the middle of a huge ocean, just trying to figure out like why nothing felt normal, but didn't know any different. Um, Until we went back to Ireland uh, when I was fifteen and she was thirteen, my uncle Michael had come out from from Ireland. He just sort of showed up at the doorstep. And here was this person from Ireland again. And he He kind of convinced my mother to let us come back for the summer. We spent the summer there. So we got to become a little bit familiar with each other and we got to see our family
3: again.
5: It was great to see them again. And we just clicked like there had been no separation at all.
3: Kelly recalls this as a turning point in their lives.
1: My Uncle Michael was a huge influence in our lives. I solely count my relationship with my sister, Rachel, to my Uncle Michael from that time that we stayed in his home.
3: The sisters made a second and longer visit to Ireland in the early 1990s. They grew closer to the O'Toole family and to memories of their father.
0: And so when I got to 21, I just said, like, that's it. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of everybody. I'm going to go back to Ireland and like reclaim my happiness. And Kelly came as well. And, uh, we lived in my uncle Michael's house and hung out with David and our cousin, Nick. And we sort of, if he hadn't done that, like, I don't think that my sister Kelly and I would ever talk. Like, I just don't think, I think that everything was just drifting further and further away. And that kind of like brought us back together. They were great. They were really good to us. And that was kind of refreshing because we had, that was unusual. That was
1: unusual. I don't think if it wasn't for that time spent, we wouldn't be as close as we are now. Like, mm-hmm. We talk quite a lot, yep. um, which shows me, I'm like, just a small time with the family. Imagine what would have happened if we were raised like that.
0: How much more awesome could we have become? Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Relations with their mother have never recovered, and for many years, neither of Valerie's daughters have seen her. Though Rachel does talk with her occasionally by phone. Valerie does not join us as Rachel and Kelly listen to Fran's recordings.
2: It's
0: a very strange thing, but every time I imagine the memories of my dad in my mind he's wearing the exact same outfit like every scenario when we're at the beach with the horses when he's throwing snowball at the window he's wearing the outfit from the album so i can't but maybe he always wore a denim shirt and jeans and this belt but i remember him shirtless yeah in the backyard so i guess there's two outfits (laughs) one top one not It's just someone who was there and then wasn't there. He was its strange because now I'm so much older than he ever could ever was. He died when he was 29.
1: More so than listening to the music, was really weird for me the first time I ever saw that um, video of RTE where he actually spoke. That was weird for me. Oh, which one? Where he spoke with the audience and he asked them to pick a song.
3: Fran recorded this programme, Me and My Music, early in the summer of 1975. Uniquely in his archive, it features him speaking as well as singing. By the time it was broadcast, he was dead. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm sure every songwriter is asked at some stage, how do you write a song? Well, not that I consider myself a songwriter, but I do write some songs. So I'll tell you, sometimes you have an idea... You might have an idea, you might get an idea from somebody else, you see, about a thing to write about, but somebody give us a a title for a song and see, can I do anything with it? Give us some title. Anybody? Paperback Writer. Paperback Writer. That is a song, but uh, I'll do my own version, okay? I'll try. Just give you an idea how you approach a song, right? Paperback
1: Writer. For me that was the first time I've ever heard him speak, as opposed to just singing a song. Yeah, there's always that. You're always, like, familiar with the music. And- yeah, so
0: uh, I was kind of
1: like a... Oh, right. Oh, right, he was a person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Alas, here's a song I didn't write myself,
3: but I wish I did because it's one of my favourite songs. It's an old traditional song, and nobody knows who wrote it. It's my own arrangement. It's called The Leaving of Liverpool.
0: Feel thee well
1: We missed out on a lot. We lost our heritage, we lost our family, we lost um, a lot of different things and uh, it doesn't matter if that was one day ago or if it was 40 years ago, we
0: still deal with it to this day. When you start to grow up and you see other people that have kids and how they treat their kids and how their kids are running towards their family members and they're hugging and laughing and... So when you begin to see that, the relationship between, you know, fathers and daughters, or parents, or just any family, grandparents, you see how real that is, and you look at it with this, like, it's like you're listening to another language, and you're like, but I, huh, I kind of understand that, but I'm, you have this, like, really deep, deep sadness, and this shame that you've been so naive that you didn't understand that that's what the world was like that that kind of um that there was love in the world like that so dusty and i've been together
1: 20 years or something and when i had first met him he's very close with his family i remember saying to him i'm like i have no intention of ever meeting them and if you're looking for the type of girl that's going to sunday dinner is That is not me, so let me know now. He's like, oh, okay. And it ended up, we ended up, I ended up meeting them, and it's all good, but that's literally how I felt, and I had to work really hard to form connections with people.
3: Valerie has decided that she doesn't want to meet up, but she does agree to take a short phone call from us.
0: We'll turn it up, I'll turn it up. Hello? Hi, it's Rachel and Susan. <laughs> okay. Can you um, can you tell Susan like I know it's you know if for you it feels as real today as it happened yesterday yeah. right yeah yeah
2: it does I, it, it doesn't get any better time does not heal all wounds like I still dream about and everything so you and do least, you know, yeah. And it's horrible when you wake up and he's not here and you
0: don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> You've said before that, uh, yeah, that it, you you never get used to that person being gone, right? You expect them to keep coming home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You,
0: you
2: do. You definitely do. My friend was killed, I, I, I went to bed. And I still never got put back together again, really.
3: Valerie has a memory of a date with Fran back in
2: 1969. We went to see Butch Cassidy and the Dance Kid. And when they came out of the cinema, I was crying. Mm -hmm. And Fran said, that only happens in movies. That doesn't happen in real life. And I've never forgot that, because it did happen in real life.
3: One of the most shocking aspects of the Miami massacre is the fact that members of the security forces were part of the Loyalist murder gang. This continues to outrage Valerie.
2: Britain's done enough to Ireland for years and years and years and years. Now, to find out that they're even involved in something like that this day and age, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They really ought to. I mean, my God... This makes me so
3: mad. Really does. Forty years on from the murder of her young husband, Valerie is taking a case against the British government. Michael Flanagan is her solicitor.
4: When we're looking at the documents and and you see the lists of objects recovered at the scene, you know, and it includes, you know, a sparkly jacket and a pair of platform boots, and you just realise just how, how kind of vulnerable the, the, these young men were. The civil proceedings are being taken against the Ministry of Defence and the Chief Constable of the PSNI, um, arguing that the Ministry of Defence is vicariously liable for the actions of its soldiers. Uh, in addition, the uh, Ministry of Defence is being sued on, on the, uh, for its admissions policy to the UDR. Uh, which we will argue uh, was a negligent policy in, in admitting loyalist uh, loyalist paramilitaries and also that the, um, uh, the then RUC failed in their role vetting um, membership of the UDR.
3: Rachel and Kelly are not involved in the case, but despite the distance between them and their mother, they support what she is doing.
0: I think it's a worthwhile cause. I, I don't think that it's OK to... Completely destroy people's lives, the paths of their lives, and I don't think it's okay to plan people's murders and leave their family stranded. And it's like, I can't, I don't think it's fine that you can just take a father away from their children and a husband away from a wife and think that they can grow up okay. I think if the case makes people aware that our lives are all still being affected by this. It doesn't just go away in a 48-hour news cycle or whatever. It doesn't go away because it, nobody wants to talk about the facts because it's inconvenient to a political agenda or you know, people are sort of tired of it in the news and they want to move on and we should just get over it. <laughs> like, that's not happening because every day we wake up, we have, our life has been built upon the structure of this event and it's shaped it.
3: Neither Kelly nor Rachel has any desire to return to Ireland. However, Valerie feels very differently. Yeah.
0: Would you move back to Ireland? Uh, if you could? I think so, yeah, I would. What would be the perfect place for you to live in? Oh, God.
2: Um, is my dream place to live in? Yeah. It would be Bray.
3: Des Lee has no doubt but that Fran was destined for greatness.
6: And I know that Fran would have made it because he, he had all, everything to be a success he had. He had the brilliant musician, brilliant songwriter, brilliant keyboard player, great singer. He had everything. But it wasn't to be.
2: If you could see Talking all about
3: After the music, Fran's daughters must find a place for their father in their lives without him. Before I leave Vancouver, Rachel has something to show me.
0: Uh, Right over here by the front door, but not directly, my dad's album cover, the one that was starting off of his solo career. But above it is a little drawing that my nephew, so my sister's firstborn son, Declan, Drew, it's a little handprint with a heart inside of it. And it's a nice It's nice to know that, you know, this this sort of picture of my dad, which can be kind of sad that there's a nice little picture above it of his grandson the They never life, got to meet, but it makes our life, lives very happy. How
2: the life goes on how the life, got so how the life, how the
4: So much life love
2: to goes give on. you how the life, Don't let your Got so much love to give you
4: The red sky As for you you